everybody. Uh, my name is Amanda Turnage. I'm a background painter on Star Trek Lower Decks, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. One of the highlights of the many new Trek shows that launched in the past few years for me has easily been Star Trek Lower Decks. I'm an animation fan, and this series has the perfect amount of fan service and actual Trek to make it exactly what I want out of a Trek cartoon. A lot of comparisons were drawn to it being like Star Trek does Rick and Morty, and while I know for certain that the show is meant to be the Trek equivalent of that Adult Swim series, I also think that Lower Decks has really come into its own, and by Season 3, it should really be standing on its own merits completely. This week, we have our first behind-the-scenes person from Lower Decks, and that's artist Amanda Turnage. Amanda is a background painter on Lower Decks, a job that requires an intricate attention to detail, color theory, and understanding space and perspective to make a convincing location for the animated characters to interact within. Amanda's career has been very diverse, and her time in the animation industry has also included working as a character designer on Moonbeam City, a color stylist on Turbo Fast, visual development artist on Trolls the Beat Goes On and Cleopatra in Space, and work in a lot of other series as a freelancer with DreamWorks, Titmouse, and Universal Animation. It's rare for someone to jump around in so many different roles in animation, but as you're going to hear today, Amanda is wildly talented and has a lot of great insight into her work and the industry. This is also Amanda's first time ever being on a podcast, so I am happy to say we have another person to add to the Trek Untold list of firsts. And I can assure you all that she did a great job handling my barrage of questions. So let's get ready to meet our first guest from the world of animation and part of the amazing team that makes Star Trek Lower Decks happen, Amanda Turnage. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. 
We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff. So you might want to take a look, too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. Now, without further ado, let's bring in this week's guest and get this episode started. Computer, beam in this week's guest. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen here, we've got Amanda Turnage, our very first person in the animation industry we're talking to on Trek Untold. Amanda, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm very excited to chat with you because I've always wanted to do animation. I've done a little bit on the amateur level, but uh, you know, originally my whole thing in college is I wanted to go into animation and storyboarding. Things happened. It got all weird. But uh, yeah, I still love talking to animators and learning about what you guys do. And uh, I'm, yeah, super excited. So uh, let's just... Go ahead, jump right on in here. And uh, Amanda, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Um, my earliest memory of Star Trek is um, watching it with my dad. Um, back when Next Gen was coming out, um, I just remember, you know, my dad would come home from work. We'd all have dinner. And afterwards, if it was a Star Trek night, we'd, you know, go into the the TV room and like cuddle up and, and you know, watch some Star Trek. Um, I think we watched Deep Space Nine as well. Um, yeah, it was just like a really fond memory, you know, just bonding with my dad over something nerdy. Now, was your family like big Star Trek nerdy fan folk or not so much? Uh, I mean, not so much. I think my dad was, you know, a, a big Star Trek fan. Um, I think uh, my brothers were more, you know, of the Star Wars leaning and my mom kind of wasn't necessarily interested in, in sci-fi stuff. Um, so I think it was my, uh, mostly just me and my dad uh, that were the, the Star Trekkers. <laughs> All right, cool. Now, I'd like to get a little bit of uh, background information about you. So can you tell us where you grew up, what your parents did, uh, and what you wanted to be when you grew up? Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area, um, like a little bit outside of San Francisco and in uh, a city called San Mateo. Um, my parents, uh, uh, my dad was kind of a, a businessman. Um, I don't quite remember what he did specifically. Um, he worked for uh, a company called um, iTron, and uh, he was head of sales, I think, for that company. Um, so he just business, you know, he'd wear a suit and carry a briefcase and go do business. And that's that was my dad. And uh, my mom was an accountant. Um, and, uh, she also, uh, there was a few years where she was a stay at home mom. Um, so those were my parents. And, um, I also had two older brothers, John and Chris and, um, and a cat named Nikki. <laughs> so that was my family. Um, growing up, I didn't, I didn't really, you know, consider art a, a career that I could do. Um, I think when I was really young, you know, around middle school, I um, wanted to become a veterinarian. So I was watching a lot of like Animal Planet and like vet emergency vet shows and things like that. Um, and it wasn't until I went to high school and I started kind of digging more into to art. I was watching a lot of anime back then and drawing a lot. And that's when I started, you know, wanting to kind of pursue art as a career. It's kind of fun because you basically have parents who are working in the most non-artistic thing possible, basically tech and accounting. That's like the opposite of what artists really want to do in their life. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I think they were, you know, a little disappointed when I, you know, went from wanting to be a veterinarian to, to an artist, but they've still been incredibly supportive to me uh, in, you know, my endeavors to become, you know, working in animation. And um, they've always been such a, a wonderful, loving, supportive um, uh, source for me. 
Um, so I'm always, I'm, I'm grateful for, for having them as my parents. Now, did you go to art school once you finished high school or did you do something else first? I originally went to school for fine art. Um, that was, that was the original plan. Yeah. It wasn't until I moved down to, to Los Angeles. I think, you know, after I graduated from UC Davis, I kind of didn't know what to do with my life. I was kind of just working, you know, administrative jobs. I made the decision just to move down to Los Angeles because it was just something, something new. It's just such a creative city. There's so much, you know, entertainment wise, there's just so much going on down here. And I was, I, I just wanted to be around more people like myself, you know, just people more creatively driven. So when I moved down here, I kind of, uh, again, was kind of struggling just to kind of find my place. I had a job at UCLA um, that didn't pan out. Um, and I was unemployed for a little bit in around 2009, 2010, during the recession, it was a bit rough. Um, I ended up temping at several different, you know, businesses, and law firms, accounting firms, um, uh, entertainment studios like Fox and CBS. Um, and eventually I decided to just go back to school, um, and, uh, go into potentially game design to try and take my artistic skills and put them towards like a practical career. And, um, eventually game design kind of, you know, I enjoyed doing game design, but, uh, you know, we also had the animation major that was going on in the same, in the same, uh, school I was, uh, going to the art Institute at the time. And I just remember just kind of gravitating more towards those, those classes and, and those groups of people and those professors and um, ended up switching majors. Um, so that's kind of how I eventually kind of found my way into an animation major. So it was basically kind of more just the practicality of potentially getting more work. That was kind of the initial theory behind it. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the idea of, of having a job where I was doing something that I, you know, enjoyed. I mean, who doesn't, you know, doing administrative work for so many years, it just, it just wasn't fulfilling anymore. I wasn't really connecting too much with, with, um, with my peers there. I, I, I've definitely made a lot of friends uh, in, in some of those jobs, but I just, you know, I would look over at people who are working in those entertainment jobs. And I was just like, I want to be there. I want to work you know, somewhere in there. And, um, I want to be around more creative people with more creative minds. And, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of ended up what drove me to kind of just start going back to school and just try and try and make, make this work. So you're coming from a fine arts background, which means you've got a really amazing foundation in basically life drawing, observational skills, these kinds of really important things, anatomy. Uh, but then mm -hmm. there's also a lot of technical skills you've now got to learn in animation. So for you, like, what was the hardest thing to adapt to in this new uh, major? Um, Let's see. I did take a course on perspective and mm. I struggle with perspective. It's very difficult for me to wrap my brain around that. It's probably why I'm not a background layout artist and I'm a background painter instead. But uh, that and uh, color theory too, especially with background painting, you have to be really good with color. Um, so just learning all of the, you know, complementary colors versus, um, you know, your values and, and contrasting colors and things like that. I was, um, you know, really really learning about what makes something look appealing um, was, was, you know, a, an interesting and uh, challenging part of, of, of school. So you mentioned you're an anime fan, and I'm sure you probably are just a fan of animation in general, too, even at that point, you know, as you're getting your toes wet to the professional side of things. But, uh, you know, were there any artists or any shows or things that you kind of liked that you really enjoy that you said, like, I want to do what they're doing, and I kind of want to maybe look maybe a little bit like what their style is? Um, well, definitely after I had moved down to Los Angeles, um, I 
I think that was around when How to Train Your Dragon came out uh, at DreamWorks. And I just, I fell in love with that movie. I thought it was so gorgeous. And I ended up getting the art book. And a lot of the illustrations in there were from uh, an artist named Nico Marley, who's a French character designer that works at DreamWorks. And he's one of their kind of go-to character designers. Um, I found his work very inspiring. And um, it definitely, you know, inspired me to want to get more into, you know, animation and design and, and working in, uh, in, in animation in general. Yeah, it's definitely, I would say he was a major, major player in that. In terms of like other illustrators that I really admired, a lot of comic book artists too. Um, speaking of like Japanese artists at Naoko Takeuchi and, uh, Clamp was a big influence for me also growing up. Um, they did, you know, Magic Knight, Ray Earth and, and Cardcaptor, Sakura and um, those amazing, those amazing comics. And um, let's see, who else? Did, there's Marguerite Sauvage and James Jean. Um, just very detail oriented illustrators uh, are some of my, some of my inspirations, especially just for my own personal work. Uh, it's not really translatable into animation because the more like detailed and, and fine, fine lined it is, it's kind of... Um, not as, as practical for animation, but yeah, for, for my personal illustrations, those are who I, uh, who I'm inspired by. So do you remember what your first professional gig was once you were done with school? Let's see. First professional gig, you know, once I finished uh, from, so I guess there's like going to be a two-parter because there was my first professional gig when I finished fine art. And then my first professional gig when I finished animation, um, my first first professional gig finishing my fine arts degree was um, I got hired to do a children's book illustration, uh, children's book. And, um, you know, I was very green back then. I really didn't know how to price my own work and um, ended up underselling myself a little bit and ended up not getting paid very much for doing a lot of work. Um, so I, that was definitely, you know, a, a learning, a learning point for me in my, in my career where I had to learn, you know, to price my work, you know, based on how much time it took to make it not based on, you know, how big or, you know, it's, I think about a lot of like the young artists that um, enter our industry or, or selling prints or, you know, trying to sell their work and they just, they just underprice it. Um, selling something that maybe took them five hours to, to create and selling it for $25 and break down the numbers on that. It's, you know, they're selling something that was a $5 an hour, you know, endeavor. And, and you always have to think about those things, like make sure that you're pricing your work based on, you know, how much time it took you and how much of your own, you know, uh, tools you were using to make it. And, and you're, um, you know, just, just make sure you're, you're, you know, selling things based on your worth, you know, you're a worthy artist. <laughs> Which is easier said than done in a lot of ways. Cause I, I remember uh, I went to uh, Comic-Con with a friend who really doesn't know anything at all about the art world. And we were walking through mm -hmm. Artist Alley and she was looking at like people selling prints and even original artwork. And she just wouldn't buy anything. She thought everything was overpriced. And we're talking about like even little like index card, original drawings for like $25. She's like, I pay five for it. And, and I'm curious to hear mm -hmm. also what my listeners will think about this kind of thing too, because I think the value that we place in art is very something that society doesn't really get in a lot of ways. Like some yeah. people get it. Other people just don't. They just will refuse to ever understand that, you know, it took hours to do something and it's worth more than 20 bucks. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You, you have to think about, I always think about hourly rate as kind of like a, a standard. It's like if it took you this many hours to make, to make, then 
you should price it based on what your hourly rate would be. But then you also have to think about, you know, yes, it took this many hours to make, and maybe it's a sketch that only took the artist like 20 minutes to just bust out really quick. But you have to think about all the years they took to learn how to do that. You know, they went to school, they, they went to college, they put all this effort and money into learning that skill. And so you have to kind of factor that into to what you're paying for. You're, you're paying for, you're paying for art, <laughs> you know, you're not just, not just paying for something somebody just threw down really quick. Like it's, it's, you're paying for their skill. And do you remember what your first animation gig was? My first animation gig was uh, at Titmouse actually. Um, I was still at school at the time and I got an internship uh, working for Titmouse. It was kind of an odd job. It was kind of a, it was some project we, we were doing for, for I think it was Amazon and it was coloring in animatics. Um, I think for their, for their marketing research, I'm not sure what the specifics were on that, but all I remember was that I was coloring animatics, <laughs> coloring in. Um, and I think that's what, you know, it was, a, I was able to showcase my abilities to just kind of like work with color really well. And from there, um, they offered me a job on King's Dark King, which was my first, you know, actual television show that I got to work on. Um, and that one was like an adult swim, an adult swim show. And I did color design for that one. And that was a JJ Villard show too, right? That was, yes. He has got to be an interesting character, I'd imagine, considering his work is pretty far out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was such a, he was such a joy to work for though. He, he, he really loved his artists and he loved his team. I've never met anybody so hyped to, to work in the industry and to create what he wanted to create. He was, he was quite the creative genius and yeah, quite a, quite a, a character to work with. He was always such a blast to be around. Now, as you're coming up in the industry too, I mean, did you get any mentors, if you will? Was there anybody there that was like kind of like maybe taking under their wing, kind of showing you the ropes and really taught you something that you continue to use this day? Oh yeah, sure. Um, you know, after I worked on Kingstar King, I uh, got hired on to Moonbeam City. Initially, I was working on that show as a, as a color designer, but at some point they needed help with character designs. And um, the lead character designer on that show, uh, her name was uh, Jojo Park. And I uh, became her assistant and uh, was promoted to the role of just uh, helping her turn her characters. So she would design the characters and then I would take them. I would kind of like, you know, do the side view, the front view, the back view, etc. And I learned so much from her about character design, especially character design turning, which is really, really difficult to do it precisely. And she had all these like really great tricks for how to do it efficiently and quickly. And I still use those tricks today. Um, and when I'm doing character design work and, um, and also she was just like this really fun, amazing person to be around. So, um, yeah, I'm really grateful for, you know, all I got to learn from her and she was definitely one of my first mentors. So let's get real granular here. Let's actually talk about what those tips and tricks were, because I am very interested in the whole turning thing. You know, if people don't know what that is. I'm going to have examples in our video version. Um, but that's essentially when you turn a character, how they have to stay on model, which means they need to look mm -hmm. exactly the same as they did when they were in you know, their front view and their three quarter view and their profile view from behind. Um, so that is something that is, as you mentioned, very, very difficult to do and do it consistently. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the tricks of the trade that uh, any aspiring animators out there listening today can learn? Oh, geez. Um, Putting on the spot now. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, sometimes it's hard to describe without having like the, the Cintiq in front of me. It's like, you do it this and you just copy. <laughs> you know, she taught me, I think one of the tricks she taught me in order to keep things, you know, you know with a, a character to a character turn, everything has to be very level. 
Um, so, you know, all the eyes have to line up all under the nose. It all has to line up the, the, the chin all has to line up. Um, so that when it turns, nothing's like kind of jumping around, you know, before I learned under Jojo, I was kind of like drawing that horizontal line and then like trying to draw the character at side view next to the three quarter and just kind of being like, is it, you know, is it matching? And, uh, she taught me to, you know, turn those characters on top of each other, you know, to make them transparent, put the, the character the side view on top of the front view and to kind of draw it that way. Um, and to also reuse a lot of my lines from the three quarters. So, you know, if I was using, you know, if I needed the arm and I needed to use it in the side view, I just, just take the arm, just take the arm off the three quarter and slap it on the side view and then just kind of like adjust it. Um, so that even your lines are just like exact and matching up. Um, so yeah, it just made, it made the process much faster and, um, especially on a show where it was just like, we had to get stuff out really quick. It was, it just made things way more speedy. That's a damn good tip. I'm stealing that one. (laughs) Stealing my secrets. (laughs) Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died pancreatic cancer 24 years ago they opened him up they diagnosed they said you've got six months to live and that was it he died four months later and at that time there was a three percent survival rate since then we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10 percent but a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours kitty swink is one of those 10 percent She had survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. With a five-year survival rate, that's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading 
patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Amanda, let's go ahead and jump into our Star Trek discussion here because we got a lot to talk about there. So you came on board as a background artist, and I'm very excited also. You know, I mentioned I'm really into the animation stuff, but I've always been really curious about background art because it's a very difficult thing to do also. I remember uh, mm-hmm. one of like, my earliest jobs I applied to at an animation house was, in fact, for background artists. And I went in there thinking, like, oh, I know what I'm doing. And no, like 20 minutes, I was crying, basically. It was horrible. Oh. So uh, we're, we're going <laughs> to get into just the... Yeah, it was not a good day for Matthew, but, uh, you know, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But I got to ask first, you know, when it comes to Star Trek shows, when I speak to a lot of actors in this podcast, most of them don't know they're auditioning for a Star Trek show. It's very, very top secret. So I'm wondering if it's the same for folks who are doing basically ancillary things like working in animation. Did you know that you were coming on board for a Star Trek show the minute you got this gig? That's that's so interesting. I did not know that the voice actors didn't know what a they were auditioning for. Yeah, well, voice actors and live action actors, too. Wow, I didn't know that. I'm learning something from you today. Um, <laughs> a lot of times if um, you get reached out to by a recruiter from a studio and it's a project that hasn't been announced yet, especially if it's a, hope, a high profile project like, like Star Trek, um, what they'll do is they'll send you an email just kind of asking what your availability is. And they say that there's a project and would you be available to work on it? Um, would you want to hear more? And you can respond and say, yes, I'd like, I am available and you can please tell me more about this project. And what they'll do is they'll send you a non-disclosure agreement to sign. You know, you'll sign it and say, I'm not going to gonna post any information on the internet. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not going to tell my cat about it. Um, you send that back and they'll, they'll, you know, tell you surprise. It's, it's Star Trek, you know, and we want to, you know, we'd like you to start working on that. In this case, however, uh, season one, I, I did freelance for uh, the first season of Lower Decks. And at that point it was already announced. So there was no need to be, you know, secretive uh, to when they asked me to work on it. They're just like, it's it's Star Trek. Do you want to work on it or not? You know, <laughs> and it was, you know, of course, a big yes. Now, looking at your resume, too, you've done a lot of different things in animation, which I'm going to talk to you about a little bit later as well. But had you ever done background art before in any any capacity? I mean, had yeah. you, I guess basically, I guess a transferable skill would be like, you know, if you had done landscapes or things like that. But was background art even something that was in your your mindset? You know, I, I jumped around a lot in 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 my previous jobs, you know, whether it was character design or color, color design, I mostly start off as a color designer, but I had done a few shows. Uh, I was a background painter on a few shows before going on lower decks. And um, the, fir- the first show that I did that for was home adventures with tip and O at, at DreamWorks. And um, that was also a show where I started off as, as a color designer. And then at some point, you know, asked to, to be given the chance to do some background painting and see if I could, I could, you know, get a little promotion and get bumped up. So I did do a few background paintings for that show. I did some background paintings for um, a company 
um, called Strange Beast that is uh, takes uh, that is over in London. And I did backgrounds for these animated commercials for a mortgage company. So I briefly did that. And then at DreamWorks like, later on, I worked on a show called Cleopatra in Space. Again, doing color design, but also doing background painting. And I, I love working on that show. The backgrounds were just so fun to work on because uh, that show also takes place in space. So there was a lot of like spaceships and planets and stars. And I, I love painting that stuff. So I think that was the last uh, show I did backgrounds on before uh, going out to lower decks. So tell us a little bit about what the workflow is at Tipmouse when you're doing a show, especially because, you know, you're doing background art, so I'm not even sure like, how to even place you into the process. So, uh, you know, normally I'd ask my guests, you know, start to finish, how's the process? But that's a really long discussion in animation. Uh, so I yes. guess more so, yeah. <laughs> so more so, I mean, where does your job fit into the workflow? Um, so color and background paint are kind of like the last leg of the design pipeline. So once, you know, they get the back. Uh, the black and white, you know, characters and props and effects. And our layout team does the black and white, you know, line backgrounds. That'll all get transferred over to the color team. So the color designer will put color on uh, the characters and effects and all their lighting and um, the background paint team. Kind of just to to break that down a little bit further, um, when we get uh, layouts and things like that, our color uh, paint supervisor, um, Claire Lent, she'll she'll usually do what, what are called color keys. So she'll take some of the key backgrounds that we'll have for an episode and she'll just do a really quick, you know, rough color pass on them just to kind of give us a starting point. Like, oh, it's going to be, you know, nighttime and we want this to be purple and this to be blue and this, this to be that. And so it's just like a nice, you know, jumping off point for when we actually get the file and we start doing paint. Um, and from there we'll, uh, you know, paint the backgrounds and, and, Specific to our production, um, we have uh, we have our main um, background painters uh, on on in the LA LA <laughs> tip mouse. Even though it's work from home, so everyone's everywhere. But like we we have our our main um, background paint team, and we'll do kind of the key establishing shots, and then from there um, things will get shipped to our Vancouver paint team and our. Um, Vancouver uh, studio will do any of the additional background paintings, you know, from the establishing shots. So if there's an establishing shot of a city and they go into the city and there's other views of the city, they'll, they'll use our keys to, to paint the rest of the shots. And then from there, I think it usually goes on to, to animation and, and other things that are more complicated. <laughs> now, looking at when you kind of started professionally in animation, uh, I think it's safe to say that you probably haven't had to work much using like traditional cells and hand painting backgrounds or hand painting any artwork like that, right? No, no. I think I just missed that era <laughs> when I got into animation. I wonder if it's something that, you know, uh, any sort of show in the industry would bring back at some point. Cause I think doing hand painted backgrounds would be really fun. I think if I'm not mistaken, SpongeBob SquarePants still does hand painted backgrounds. I'm not sure. Don't don't maybe don't quote me on that one. But yeah, everything we do is is digital. Uh, uh, so specific to lower decks, um, we mainly use Photoshop to to paint our backgrounds in. Photoshop is a big one. That's a pretty much an industry standard, also. But uh, generally speaking, you know, for what you do, uh, what are the tools of the trade that you guys use? I mean, I know you mentioned that you got a Cintiq, and you just mentioned Photoshop. Mm -hmm. But really, what are all the tools that your department is going to be specializing in? Um, well, definitely Cintiqs. Definitely need those. Um, we need color correct monitors so that we make sure all the colors are coming out, you know, crisp and correct, and 
um, the worst thing is working on a file and realizing that your, your monitor was leaning towards green a little bit too much and you turn it in and it's like, oh, it's really green. <laughs> I didn't mean it to happen. So those are kind of the, the hardware that we need. Um, really good computers with very good graphics cards because and good RAM because Photoshop eats RAM like crazy. Um, and program-wise, uh, Photoshop. Um, and I guess I would, I would say Adobe, I use Adobe Bridge a lot. I know that's kind of just more for file management, but um, it's really good using that. And so you can just kind of see all the uh, thumbnails of all the different backgrounds you're working on and help organize the files. And I think those, those are the main, uh, main tools that I, that I use. So in my experiences, I know that a lot of times storyboard artists will also have to do some animation. Typically, they might have to do some animatics, which are basically just animating elements of the storyboards. So mm -hmm. sometimes there is crossover in the industry. Is there ever any crossover with basically you having to maybe animate something in the background or anything like that? Or are you just strictly focused on the backgrounds? I am strictly focused on on the backgrounds. Um, I would be so useless helping the animators do anything. <laughs> uh, it's not something that I'm really good at. The only thing that I got to do on Lower Decks that was uh, a little bit outside of background painting was um, painting some of the CG models of the ships. We, you know, we had the Vulcan cruiser in one episode and we had the, the Packlid, uh, the large Packlid ship. Um, I, and this was the first time I ever did this on a show. It was really, it was something where I went into it just like, oh, I don't want to do that. You don't need paint ships it's like painting cars Ooh. but I ended up like really enjoying it I, I basically would get um a jpeg or a still image of the 3d model and a three-quarter and a, a three-quarter back of like a spaceship and it would just be kind of in black and white gray I think the it would have a shadow render on it or some ambient occlusion and it was just it, but it wouldn't be painted at all um so I would take that and add all the color on it and go in and add all the little scratches and the wear and tear on the edges and getting to think about things like, Oh, you know, if there's like, um, if the, if, if there's like, uh, things coming out of like the weapons and it's really hot then maybe it would be a little bit burned on the edges there. And, you know, maybe it would just have some dents here and there from, you know, different rocks and space debris hitting it. Um, so it was fun kind of like telling this little story through, the the texturing on this on this ship and um i was always really proud of the end result it always looked really cool and and so now i'm kind of like a little bit of a spaceship nerd or i just get really excited if i get to paint one <laughs> all right so i know that we did a pre-interview earlier and you kind of talked to me about how you're pretty much a hardcore trekkie and uh we got to start now telling the fans how much of a hardcore trekkie you are and let's talk about some specific oh. backgrounds <laughs> that you worked on here that's nothing to be worried about we're not going to be you know going too nerdy here but we're gonna get a little bit nerdy uh, okay that's so yes so let's talk about a few specific things. So you mentioned, you basically sent me a list of some of the ones that you worked on yourself for uh, Lower Deck Season 1 and 2. So uh, mm -hmm. we're just going to kind of run through a few and see what you remember about working on them. And uh, one of the ones you told me you were really proud of was the Cardassian Interrogation Room. Yeah! <laughs> You're already that excited. Was, Good. <laughs> I just like that background a lot. Um, and I like that episode of Next Gen a lot, too. That was the very, I think that was the very first background I did on Season 2. And I remember we were, we had a meeting and we were kind of breaking down who was going to get which shot. And, you know, we had just all watched the animatic together. And I remember just being like, interrogation room, interrogation room, interrogation room. Oh, we're going to give the, the interrogation room to Amanda. And I was like, yes. Um, it's just such a great reference. Um, I, I love that. I love that episode so much with the four lights and, and I wanted to do such a good job and make it look exactly like 
like the the room from the show. And I remember looking up all these references on Google, just trying to make sure that the wall drew the correct shade of blue, purple, and that the lights looked especially bright and hypnotic. And yeah, I, I definitely, you know, if it's a if it's a background that kind of has some sort of reference to the to the sh- to the live action shows or movies, I just get super excited about it. And you also mentioned to me that you're a big fan of the Vulcans, and you know, going down this kind of alien pathway here, you did the uh, mm-hmm. the Vulcan cruiser as well. That was a nice looking background. I really like that one too. Uh, yeah, totally worked on that one. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity of of not only getting to to paint the color of the exterior of the Vulcan cruiser, um, I also got to do some of the interior backgrounds, uh, which included the the bridge itself and also the the science lab. Um, and we had reference for the science lab. Um, I believe that was that reference was from um, uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Um, if I get that wrong, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I believe that's what that reference is from. Um, and uh, the bridge. Um, I don't think I had any reference for that. I think I just had to base the colors on that based on what the color palette was in, in the the science lab. Um, but it was such a treat working on those backgrounds. I, I do love the Vulcans very much, uh, second to how much I love the Romulans. Um, so being able to to do some backgrounds that were related to my favorite Star Trek race was was such a treat. Now, we mentioned earlier in this interview about one of the harder things for you to kind of get your head around was perspective. Uh, with Cardassians, you know, especially there's all sorts of different angles and things. So you're going to deal with a lot of weird perspective. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, with backgrounds, if your perspective is wrong, the whole thing is basically kind of ruined ultimately. So, uh, you know, what, what kind of things do you need to look at and, and think about when you're doing these types of backgrounds and keeping things in perspective? You know, luckily as a painter, I, I don't really have to worry about that because I, that's really more of the background layout team's um, job is to do the, the the line art and figure out the perspective and things. But as a, as a painter, you do have to to enhance that um to enhance what they've put down. So um, you can definitely use color and your values in order to, to push the perspective even further. Um, you know, with things that are far away, they're a little bit more faded and things that are up close, your values and your contrast are a bit stronger. So yeah, I definitely feel like it's, it's certain, certain skills you have to make sure you're really hitting in order to, to make sure that things look correct um, and look kind of realistic or not necessarily realistic, but you know, uh, that the forms are reading correctly and that um, that you can kind of tell what you're looking at without things kind of getting confusing. Now, one of the ones that I think you did was really, really awesome. I know fans love this one was on Quelar. You did a bunch of backgrounds on that planet. Uh, it's basically like the Las Vegas in space. Uh, and there's yes. a ton of nerdy stuff hiding in that. So uh, talk about <laughs> what you did on Quelar. Which, which, um, that in itself sounds like a phrase that is, is should be on a t-shirt. But yeah, what'd you do on Quelar? <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about Quaylor. So that one, that was another one where, you know, Claire gave me um, some color keys to work off of for that one. And it was very needed because especially that establishing shop where uh, Tendi and Mariner walking into the street and you just see this, this vast, immense neon lit, you know, strip of stores and, and shopping areas. And it was so detailed. That was probably the background that took me the most time of any background I've ever worked on. And um, having Claire's color keys was just so helpful. Um, but I remember at that time, I was, um, I think that was during Christmas uh, this last year. And it was during the pandemic. And I think a lot of us were kind of, you know, having a tough Christmas. You know, none of us were, I wasn't with my family during this last Christmas. And um, so I just remember that was kind of what I was working on was all those Quailor shots. And I remember having 
all these Christmas movies on while I was working on it. I think I went through all of the Santa Claus movies, all of the Home Alone movies. Uh, I think specifically for the the the, the Quaylor, you know, shopping strip, it was uh, uh, the Grinch, the Jim Carrey movie. <laughs> so I like to think that you know, chaotic, colorful movie kind of helped with like really pushing some of the colors in that shot. Um, the other fun thing about um, those Quaylor backgrounds, and you can especially see it in the downshot of the city um, where you can see the water and the, and the port and everything. Um, I started, that's the, that's the episode where I kind of started doing a lot of like vertical um, uh, kind of lens flares on, on the, on the backgrounds um, just because I thought like it would really sell the neon lights kind of aspect of it. Um, and uh, it turned out, you know, my supervisor and my art director like really liked how that looked. Um, so they ended up, you know, in future backgrounds, anytime we had like kind of lit, you know, glows or neon lights, they'd be like, oh, let's put more of those like vertical flares. And um, so I feel really, you know, I, I feel really like chuffed that I got to, you know, add some very specific, um, something specific to me to the, to the show. Um, I, I partially did them because it was my little, you know, secret homage to the J.J. Abrams movies with the, the horizontal lens flares that he would put everywhere. And I was like, just vertical ones. They'll be unique to us. <laughs> and another super duper nerdy one that I know a lot of fans loved seeing was the interior of the collector ship. And that is just, mm -hmm. again, filled with all sorts of references. So, you know, even go back into Quail R2 and now talk about this one here. Uh, when you're making these, like, various references in the background, is that you calling that shot? Or is it, like, someone else saying, put this here, put that there? Um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure who the exact person is who is making those decisions. I, I have a feeling it's Mike. Um, he's kind of, like, the... the um, in, has the encyclopedic knowledge of like all of the Star Trek. So, but I do remember receiving a PDF file <laughs> for the collector's ship. Um, and I think it was 10 pages long or something. And it was just all this very specific references with, with pictures and names of like what everything was so that we would stay on track, you know, with what everything was and what the color should be for it, which was very useful uh, as much as I do, you know, enjoy Star Trek and I've watched a lot of Star Trek in my time. There were some references that I was like, I have no idea what this is. No idea. <laughs> so, um, but it was so fun doing it, just knowing that, you know, uh, the fans got to watch and kind of play, you know, find the reference and, you know, point out what Easter eggs they could find. And um, yeah, that was, that was a really great, a, a great background to work off of. Yeah, those are some really, really fun ones. And I was really excited to find out also that you told me that you are responsible for Cetacean Ops. And that is one that's yeah. been like in, in, in Star Trek nerddom for quite some time. Like once people discovered <laughs> that existed, everybody's like, what does it look like? And you were you basically finally got to show what that really looks like. So uh, tell me about Cetacean Ops. What's it like being, uh, you know, I'm going I'm to call you the first officer of Cetacean Ops because you basically made it. So uh, what was it like working on that one? Um, that one was really fun. Um, I, one of the things I, I like the most in background painting, um, obviously just with the flares and everything is I love lighting effects. I love doing glows. I love doing, you know, reflections. I love doing like different lights, back lighting things. And Cetacean Ops was, was really fun to work on. Cause I, I got to do that kind of refracted light kind of on the ceiling and hitting the walls and things like that. Um, getting, that water to have like that really nice glow effect on it was um, really fun to work on. 
Um, and I remember I was really excited to get that shot because I remember watching the animatic and just cracking up at those at those uh, porpoises, <laughs> beluga. I think they're beluga whales. The beluga whales trying to coax Rutherford into the water. <laughs> it was, I was really excited to get that shot, and I was I was very happy with um, how well received that scene was with with the fans, and it was it was excited that I got to be a part of that one. So how much say does Paramount actually have in what you do and what ultimately gets used on screen? Like, is there actually someone from the studio who gets a final approval on all the different backgrounds and assets that you guys are working on? Oh, okay. That, that one is a question I'm not sure how to answer just because I really don't know. I, I imagine like most things, especially, you know, any sort of high profile franchise that's been around for a long time that a studio is really protective of. Um, they have a lot of say in, in what goes into every episode and what's getting referenced. And I think uh, just within the show itself, you know, Mike is the, our our final say, you know, and what gets get put into an episode and what the little references are and everything. Uh, but beyond him, I'm, I'm sure there's a team of who knows, executives, lawyers, who I, I'm not sure um, in the Paramount side that gets to kind of like really, really hone in and have the final say on what, on what gets put onto the show. But um, I'm not exactly sure um, how that process goes. Well, you personally, I mean, have you ever had to basically redraw something entirely because they were like, oh, we can't use this in this shot or we can't use this thing over here. Like, has that ever happened to you on the show? Not on Lower Decks, no. On other shows I've worked on, on, yes. Um, I remember um, working on Home Adventures with Tip and O and we did, um, we did a series of mailmen for an episode. And um, I remember as a color designer, I made their, their outfits, you know, blue, like mailmen. And I think our designer had put like a little eagle or something on one of the bags. And we did get a note later from, from the lawyers like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like that's, you know, that's an established like thing. Like we could get sued for that. Their outfits can't be blue. You can't have eagles on the bags. And it was like, oh, oh, okay. And so we had to like go and redo those things. And um, that kind of thing happens a lot in, in animation where, you know, sometimes, sometimes you're on top of things and you're like, oh yeah, no, we wouldn't be able to do that. That's, you know, a copyright thing. Um, but they do have, you know, uh, teams of, of lawyers and things, you know, overseeing things on the, on the other side that, you know, will let us know if we've, we've overstepped in some way. Um, but so far it, it, on Lower Decks, especially with backgrounds, I haven't um, encountered that yet. I'm going to deduce that because the background art is just basically towards the end of the process. They've probably like worked out everything by the time it even gets in your hands. So I would assume you probably don't even have to worry about that kind of stuff happening. Yeah. And also it's like, we don't have to worry about copyright because it's Star Trek and we have the rights to it. So (laughs) (laughs) So, how would you say that working on Lower Decks is different from other shows that you worked on? Um, There's definitely more pressure uh, just because of how beloved the franchise is and how you know, exact everything has to be. Um, there's definitely this pressure of, you know, making sure it looks good and making sure things are, are accurate. And um, there was one, you know, I'm, I, as a fan, I always try and make sure that I'm, I'm painting things correctly. You know, we do get PDFs with like, you know, the Easter eggs and things like that, but um, sometimes we don't. And sometimes it's just, you know, I, I just have to be kind of aware um, there was one spaceship that was in some parking lot, um, that I did. I'm not going to mention which one it was, but, um, I painted one of the ships in the parking lot incorrectly. And, um, it was later after the episode had, had streamed and, um, there was somebody on Twitter kind of, you know, pointed out because of, of course there our fans are so eagle eyed, they'll, they'll catch everything. 
and it wasn't a mean thing. They were just kind of like, oh, this this ship's usually, you know, this color, and it's painted this color. And I was like, oh my god, I'm so mortified as a fan. I was I was so embarrassed. Um, I was I probably took it too hard. I was just, you know, I felt so bad that I, I you know, misrepresented a piece of Star Trek um, to the fans. But the the beautiful thing about our fans is that they're just so sweet. Like none of them, you know, nobody was criticizing us for mis miscoloring this one ship. <laughs> so um and I think that's you know also what sets this this show so so separately from other shows I've worked on is are the fans themselves and just the the kind of um feedback and um uh and appreciation and love that we get from the fans. And um I think it was a few weeks ago I had retweeted one of the backgrounds I had done. It was the the um the the bridge from uh Wrath of Khan. And um I, I was just like, hey, I painted this, very proud of it. And just this this flood, I, I was not expecting the, the flood of, of fans just wanting to say how much they loved it, how much they loved the episode, how much they loved the show. Um, people saying, thank you, like, thank you for making this show. It was just very, very touching and very heartwarming. And um, yeah, I've, I've never experienced that on another show. And it just makes this, this show feel so special. And I was one of those people that were part of that social media avalanche that found you because of that post. So yeah, thank you for putting <laughs> out there. So Amanda, what would you say would be the most time-consuming background you had to make on Lower Deck so far? Oh, definitely the the Quaylor one. Um, that the, the Quaylor Street with all the lights and everything. Definitely that one. So in terms of like when I, when I say time-consuming, also you know, for folks who don't know how long this process takes, how long does it take you to make a single background, and you know, which ones would take you the most hours or days even to do? Um, hmm. it's, it's hard to say. Sometimes a background will go by really quickly, uh, depending on, you know, you're just, whether you're really honed in or not, or just feeling, you know, artists, sometimes we feel like working really hard and we're really focused and other times we're just kind of, you know, feeling a little tired and wanting to take a break. I think for the most part, depending on the complexity of a background, um, they could take anywhere from half a day to three days, depending on how complex they are. Um, definitely we have some um, establishing shots in lower decks with uh, any of the space stations where it's all like the really rendered space station with all the little lights and all the little windows and things like that and with large planets. Um, I know for a fact those ones take some, can sometimes take days. Um, whereas there's backgrounds like uh, I did the background of the, the sonic showers uh, for one of the episodes and that one took me, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours tops, just, it was just such a simple, simple background that it took less time. So it's really a range depending on complexity. Now I know that the animators, the story of our artists, a lot of the production team will have like a style guide with rules they have to follow with certain things they can do, certain things they're supposed to do, uh, ways to basically keep the characters and, the, and everything in it grounded in that reality. So when it comes to the background art, do you have the same set of rules that you have to follow, like a certain set of colors or tones or values that you have to use, anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, once, you know, especially after the first episode came out, there's, um, you know, a style guide for what the colors of the the Jeffrey's tubes, uh, the the warp core, you know, the bridge, the the colors we use for the chairs and the ready room, everything has to be documented so that we can keep, um, keep continuously, you know, matching that and, and staying, 
uh, staying true to the colors that were established in the first first episode. And um, so we definitely have to be careful of that. If it's a new a new environment, um, we can kind of get a little bit more creative. But anytime we're doing backgrounds for the the Cerritos, especially, it's like we have to go back and refer to those backgrounds to make sure that we're we're keeping things consistent. I imagine it can be probably a little bit stifling sometimes because you do have to stay so consistent with what those guidelines are. Uh, but you kind of mentioned a few times earlier, like, you know, how you were doing the Quailor backgrounds that were inspired by Jim Carrey's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, so, yeah, my question... Well, I don't know, that's a little far. <laughs> that's a stretch of interpretation, I guess, but, you know, it's kind of like... Got me motivated. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. But uh, I guess, you know, kind of my follow-up to that thought is uh, how do you get to put your creativity and your personality into these backgrounds? Um, definitely. Like I, like I said before, with the getting to add my own little flair <laughs> to things like with the vertical flares, you know, I, I get to add a little, little spark every once in a while. Um, again, I really love adding glow effects and, um, special lighting, uh, especially with, you know, sometimes on, um, spaceships and things like that, especially in Star Trek, things can be a little beige and gray. And, um, I'll always try and find a way to like, you know, push things into a more colorful directive direction so that we can, you know, get a little bit more interest into the shot um, with like interesting uplighting or, you know, um, one of the things I do is, you know, can this glow? Can I make this glow? And it's just <laughs> anything I can make have some sort of glow effect. I'll put a glow on it. Um, yeah. And, it's, and especially with the the flares, the vertical flares, again, it was just really nice that, you know, I had an idea for something and it was was received well by my by my supervisor and my art director and it was carried over into future episodes. So now you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, I've talked to guys who were even like editors or VFX people on the new Star Trek shows and they've gotten to spend time with like Jonathan Frakes or other cast members or some of the actors, producers, whatever. Um, but you know, you guys are working basically in your bubble at Titmouse where you don't really get yeah. to interact with these people. So, you know, you don't get to have those same experiences, but you do get to have something else that we don't. And that's really first access to a lot of things that we have to wait months to see. So for example, having Commander Riker suddenly show up in Lower Decks and having Ensign Sonia Gomez finally show up as Captain Sonia Gomez. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm curious, you know, I imagine that you guys all get together and watch the final exports once they're all done. So, uh, you know, how much of a secret is it? Like, what kind of a reaction is there when, when you guys see, like, Riker on screen for the first time in years ever on the Titan? Um, I mean, it's definitely really exciting. Um, we, we know pretty far ahead in the, in the production, like, who's going to be in episodes um, especially since when the animatic comes out, sometimes the voiceover work is already there. So we'll be able to be like, oh, that's so oh, they got, they got Jonathan Frakes to do Riker. And, ooh, it's so exciting. And like, so we, you know, um, we do get to, to know ahead of time, like who's gonna, who's gonna be like a, a voice actor for, for our show. And it is, it's always very, very exciting. I think my, my favorite um, uh, voice actor guest that we had in season two was Jeffrey Combs. Um, I was a huge fan of his when he was Wayun on Deep Space Nine, and um, just he's such a he has such a range as an actor. Watching Deep Space Nine, you just see you know some random alien come in and have a have a line, and you just feel like that Jeffrey Combs, that Jeffrey Combs, and he played like so many different characters. And so when I when I saw that he was going to be playing that little like evil computer in in that one episode i was just ecstatic i was so excited that he that he got to that we got him to, to do a voice on the show but yeah it is a bummer you know if we were working in the studio um and not doing the work from home thing it, and the pandemic wasn't an issue we'd all probably have more of a chance of being able to like meet these actors when they came in to do their 
to do their, their voiceover work. Um, but it depends. Uh, sometimes uh, actors have their own recording studios that they prefer to go to. Um, but there were a few times when I was working at Titmouse in Hollywood, working on Moonbeam City, that, that some actors did actually come in to record at our studio. And so that was a real treat being able to meet some of them. Uh, your resume shows you as someone who has done a lot of different types of work in the industry, like we alluded to earlier and how you've already talked about a few of those things that you did. So, you know, to kind of recap, you've done visual development, you've done character design, you've done color design, and right now in Lower Decks, you're doing background art. So that's, I think, a pretty uncommon thing to have somebody in, in the industry just jumping around into so many different positions, because normally it's like you're kind of just doing the one thing and staying within your lane, essentially, but you're really spread out. So uh, what do you attribute to the ability to be that flexible? Uh, uh, getting bored so easily, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, I think I do have a tendency to 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 need novelty in my in my work. You know, I, I, I you know when I was doing color design, um, that was fun for a while. But then I was like, oh, I want to I want to try something else. I want to try character designs and background painting. And I think I was kind of the special case where you know I really did want to to narrow down which one of those things to focus on, but I never could. It was always you know, somebody would, an art director would prefer me for character designs and another art director would prefer me for, for background painting. And as work became available, you know, and, and my, um, connections expanded, it was very split in the middle of what I'd be known for amongst my, my colleagues. And so, yeah, it was just like, it just kind of happened that way. It was just like a weird, uh, it became a jack of all trades unintentionally, but also somewhat intentionally. And, um, it's great because it means that I don't have to limit myself to one, to one thing on my resume. And so if there's, you know, a dry spell and I can't find any background painting work, um, I could always go into, you know, some, ask if there's some character design work, but it is a rare thing. Uh, typically artists in our industry have their, their focus and that's what they, they just kind of narrow in on. And I'm, I'm a bit of an oddity <laughs> for that, for that. So for anybody who's listening today that is someone who's aspiring to work in the animation industry, uh, is there any kind of advice you would tell them to prep themselves for a future working in it? <laughs> I'm trying to think, because I'm trying to think of how I got in the industry and it was so roundabout. You know, I, I went back to school and I just got an internship, but that not everyone has that, you know, ability to go back to school and pay for school just to get their foot in the door. I'd say maybe, you know, especially trying to get into the industry, a lot of it is is based on people that you know. And um, I mean, your skill is obviously very important. And um, I know people who have strong internet presences on Twitter and, and Instagram and things like that. It also helps. But definitely be prepared to to uh, be good to work with, you know, and, and to make connections and not be too... Um, you know, introverted, you know, it's just making your connections is probably like the best way to, to kind of one, get your foot in the door and get into the industry and just being pleasant to work with in general uh, is, is, is great. Uh, Cause it is what gets people to call you back because they want you on their team, you know, because they enjoy working with you. So I would say, um, you know, any opportunity you have to, to make your connections in the industry is, is important. And I think one of the one of the ways to do that is to definitely take classes, you know, um, anything that you're interested in learning about, you know, whether it is perspective or storyboarding or background painting, um, taking courses on it, especially if it's uh, led by teachers who work in the industry themselves. Um, for instance, uh, Concept Design Academy in Los Angeles is a great example because they have a lot of teachers that are, are industry professionals. And I know lots of lots of people that took those courses and then got jobs in the industry because the the teacher liked their work so much. 
Um, so definitely whatever, whatever opportunities you have, you can to get yourself out there and be seen and make those connections is, is really important and, and don't rely too much on trying to get followers and likes and, and whatever's on, on Twitter, just, you know, also try and make, make your connections as well. All right. So Amanda, for folks who want to learn more about what you do and want to follow your career and especially follow you on social media, how can people do that? Well, I have an Instagram. It's probably the best uh, place to follow me if you're interested in my artwork. It is uh, manderdoodle, all one word. And I do have a Twitter account. Um, I post art on there sometimes, but mostly I'm posting memes and and jokes. And I don't expect anybody to really want to follow that. So um, my Instagram, again, is manderdoodle (laughs) if you'd like to follow me for my art. So everybody out there, go ahead, follow Amanda on social media there. Give her all the follows and give her memes all the likes. Yeah, give me memes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so amanda last thing for today uh, i feel like you actually kind of already answered this uh, earlier in the, in the interview but i'm just gonna ask it again because that's how we do things here uh what's the best thing about being a part of the star trek universe what is it the best part about it i mean it's just what feels so good about being a part of the star trek universe is like as a fan just being a part of it is what feels really good um and and the fans themselves i feel like that's to me, that's always been the best part of Star Trek is, is the fan base and um, being a fan. And it always takes me back to one of my favorite uh, scenes in Lower Decks. And um, it was in, I think, season one. But it was when all of the uh, all of the characters like Mariner and Boimler and, and everyone was in the in the bunks and they're doing the engine noises. And they're all, you know, debating what the the warp core engine noise sounds like. And then Tendi jumps in at one point and she was like, are we all doing the engine noises? Um, and to me, that just kind of, you know, fully encompassed, like the joy I felt of even working on the show is it's the joy that they were feeling working on a starship is so similar to the joy I felt of working on the show. And to me, like, that's just, that's the best part is just being a part of it, being a part of this universe. That's a great answer. All right. So <laughs> yeah. And, and just want to remind folks out there listening, by the way, uh, now, now to to- totally embarrass you here, uh, but this is Amanda's first time doing a podcast and I just want to say you did an excellent job here dealing with all my terrible questions and making sense. Oh, I, of hope so. I was, I was so nervous. <laughs> I was so nervous. No, no, you, you did a great job. And, and it's so great that uh, if you're on season three, then uh, we totally should have you come back and do this for three or four hours. How about that? Oh boy. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel the excitement, uh, <laughs> but yeah, awesome. you know, Amanda again, Thank you so much for coming by and telling us all about this. Again, this is a part of animation that I know very little about. And I think a lot of my listeners probably also, it's something that they kind of take for granted in a cartoon. And, uh, you know, I feel like it's really great to meet the person behind it and learn about what you do, how you do it. And also just to know that, you know, you are a Trekkie, you're part of this world, and you are part of the Star Trek family now. So uh, thank you so much for all your time today, Amanda. (laughs) Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. 
If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew. Thanks for listening. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.